Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. 1983. Crime and unemployment were still high, but it was morning in corporate America. The Dow was up by a third in six months, and the go-go 80s had begun. Among the many who landed in New York to make their fortune that year was a hotshot magazine editor from London who would chronicle and then shape that decade like no other. Tina Brown was 29 years old. Her story became inseparable from that of her creation, a relaunched 1920s glossy that came to define the Reagan era, Vanity Fair. Brown was a decisive boss, an instinctive editor, and a pioneer of layout. But that's only a part of what secured her place on top of New York society. She brought to her dinner parties an outsider's power of social observation and a wit so sharp you didn't know you were bleeding until you were halfway home. But Tina Brown can tell her own story. She did, in fact, in real time. Her new book, Vanity Fair Diaries, is a series of diary entries starting the day she first landed in New York for Vanity Fair. Wednesday, May the 1st, 1985. Thursday, January the 10th, 1990. Monday, Wednesday, Sunday, April the 10th, 1983. I am here in NYC at last, brimming with fear and insecurity. Getting in late last night on British Airways, I suddenly felt the enormousness of New York City. She made it to the big leagues because four years earlier, barely out of Oxford, Tina Brown landed the editorship of a languishing old magazine called Tatler, after everyone else turned down the job. And I turned it into this very buzzy little glossy. And Cy Newhouse, who was then the chairman of Condé Nast, then after two years of me editing it, three years, he came in and he bought it for Condé Nast. So that's how I joined Condé Nast, was that I was really brought into the family of Condé Nast with Tatler. And you were and you were over there, obviously. When I was in London, in London, absolutely. And how long did you do that uh, under his ownership? Well, I left actually after about a year because the Tatler had been this kind of scrappy little startup. And when Condé Nast bought it... Uh, I missed the insurgent nature of the public. You know, I I loved having my little team of insurgents, these young Turks that I had out of college. And then when Condé Nast brought it, I felt it had become a sort of stately thing. And I I just, you know, I I love being in the kind of uh, the rebel band, you know. So I I left, actually. People don't normally put you in the rebel band. (laughs) Well, I know. You've been in some pretty ivory towers in your lifetime. Right, but rebel band is where I began. And And you like that. I love that. And I had a very brilliant young group who all went on to do great things at Condé Nast. So I, le- I left, and then as I left, I kept hearing that Condé Nast had launched this new magazine in America, uh, Vanity Fair, that this was, they were bringing back this icon, this old magazine of the 20s and 30s that had had all these amazing, you know, people like Claire Booth Luce and, and, and Dorothy Parker and so on writing for it. And I was very attracted to that because I'm a sort of magazine romantic. So I never thought I would get to edit it, but I, I you know, we heard it like the music in the other room. Then Condé Nast launched Vanity Fair in 83, and it was a complete debacle. You know, the first two Why? editors. Well, it was one of those things where the sort of the pre-hype uh, sort of almost killed the magazine. It was a complete dissonance between the magazine they were advertising and hyping and the magazine they put out. 
They, what was the chasm between the, the two? The chasm between the two was that they said, uh, great magazine comes back from the dead, legendary magazine, you'll never see anything more exciting, more glamorous, more important than this magazine. And then they hired a very bookish, uh, very, you know, a, a, a nerdy, uh, smart guy from the New York Times who'd never been a magazine editor Who was before. that? His name was Richard Locke. Okay. And, you know, on paper, he was a good hire. He was a brainy guy, but he'd never done a magazine. And magazines, it's it's all about the chemistry of the words and the pictures and the headlines and the, you know, and the captions and all of the things that make a magazine dance. He didn't know how to do that. So it became, it was a very boring magazine. And who was after him? And then they hired, they fired him and brought on Leo Lerman, who was the former editor, uh, features editor of Vogue. He was uh, a kind of 75-year-old, you know, culture maven, uh, old kind of gossipy old guy who, who you know, who, who was the sort of the darling of the ladies who lunch. Completely antique, uh, had absolutely no concept of how to do this thing at all. He then uh, flamed out. And when he was there, I was asked by by Nast to come in and sort of consult because I then left Tatler and they thought, well, this young Turk who, you know, who then split, let's bring her into American Nast and see whether she can help old Leo kind of get the thing right. And they paid you to consult. They paid me to consult and I spent three months there and I realized that Leo was never going to get this right, that it was a complete fiasco. Um, he was fiercely jealous of me anyway and didn't want me anywhere near it. And I realized, hey, I could do this thing. Why am I being so timid? You and you know? wanted to. I then really wanted to, yes. I decided I'd made a mistake uh, not sort of pitching myself to do it, that I should have pitched myself to do it. I kind of felt that I'd wimped out by not saying to them at the beginning, I'd love to do this. You so know? from the time you finished at Tadlert and then your consultancy lasts, how long before you take over Vanity Fair? Um, it was about nine months, really. So not even a year. Not even a year, really. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I came back. So my Vanity Fair diaries really sort of begin at that time because I came in as a consultant in, in the summer of 83 with Leo and the, the the diaries sort of show the rising realization that I should be the editor of this magazine. This magazine and I were made to to make music together. I left New York, went back to London, and they fired Leo and brought me back as editor in 1984. So to the extent that you can say, I mean, all people really have in the popular culture is um, Devil Wears Prada and all these very, very kind of theatrical representations of the world of publishing. Is it really that one person has to dominate and their will has to call the day? You had to sit there with a group of people and say, it's got to be this and this, that you took their advice. Well, what did you do? I mean, a great editor isn't an autocrat. I mean, you have to have a vision in the same way the director has to have a vision of a movie. And you have to have a worldview, too. I mean, my my feeling was that Vanity Fair, I knew what I wanted to do with Vanity Fair. I wanted to, to combine the elegance and glamour of the magazine, of the famous magazine of the 20s and 30s, with some of that narrative gristle of journalism that had then become uh, uh, the sort of uh, defining feature of the great magazines of then the 70s and 80s, like Rolling Stone, like New York Magazine. So I wanted to modernize that formula, if you like, and then bring a kind of real modern spin. And the modern spin I brought, because this was 1984, was we were in the Reagan era, right? We just, uh, Ronald Reagan was on a glide path to re-election. I came in as a London uh, outsider who didn't know really much about America. And I was just plunged into this world of Reagan's America, which was this kind of black tie, wildly uh, consumerish, you know. Bob Colicello. (laughs) Bob Colicello, he was on the magazine. It was just, I mean, I, I, it boggles my mind when I, when I read the diaries now and when I started to compile them. 
how much we went out. I mean, every night it was like I had red nails and the long dress, and it was like yeah. the black tie dinners. and Yeah, the high-end New York. New York and high-end New York. You know, Nancy Reagan and her walkers, and Jerry Zipkin was this socialite with a face like a B-day. Nan Kempner, <laughs> Betsy Kempner, Bloomingdale. Betsy Bloomingdale. Pat Buckley. That's exactly, you got those names. And are. they were out there, you know, and it was enormous fun to cover it. And then in the meantime, in, in then in L.A., there was all this kind of the rise of, of, of the spellings, you know, uh, and, and candy spelling and the big houses and the monster mansions and the whole of this thing. So it was a wonderful world to cover. And I sort of felt that our mission was to dramatize it, make it sing in our pages. And I hired my very first hire as a writer, actually, was Dominic Dunn. And mm. Dominic Dunn, uh, I first met when I came as a consultant in the summer at the dinner party of Marie Brenner, who was at Vanity Fair. And he was this out-of-work film producer, mm-hmm. and he was next to me. I love Nick. And he was so great, and he was so entertaining in dinner. And then he told me this horrendous story that his daughter had been murdered, and right. he was on his way out to L.A. to uh, the trial of his daughter's murderer. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't you keep a diary? Being a great diarist myself, I said, you know, keep a diary. Maybe you would make it into something to read, and I'd love to publish it. So he, his eyes lit up, and off he went. And the piece that he brought back, which was published in the magazine, was an absolutely epic piece of oh, sort yeah. of narrative personal journalism. Mm. So my very first hire, when I came back in, as editor in 84, I said to Nick, you know, I want you to be my first hire. Uh, I want to get a crowd of writers who can define the magazine. And that's, of course, what he helped to do. Now, for those who don't know this, you kept copious diary entries. Mm-hmm. What is it about you that you're such a uh, dedicated diarist? I've tried that <laughs> myself. I've got boxes that have books in them and notebooks. And some of them have those little diary-like looks. To them, And you open and there's maybe like a week's worth of entries and then it's gone. <laughs> it's over. Well, I think I'm a compulsive reporter, actually. I mean, I have what I think of as observation greed. Right. Most of the time I'm propelled to go out, not because I actually want to go out, but I think I got to see that. I, you know, I need to see that. So curious. I'm curious. I'm really curious. And I have a, a, a great desire uh, to report on, on, on the action, if you like. So I, I've always done that. I've always and, and because I was alone, my husband at that time, uh, Harry Evans, was uh, actually in Washington working. It was a pre-digital era. So I would come back from these black tie dinners. <laughs> And I would be on my own. I hadn't got kids at that moment. And I sat down and just, it was like wanting to talk to a friend. And so it was literally sort of dear diary almost, you know, and then I just gushed it all up. Plus I was from London and so I, it was all new to me. Everything about this place was wild. I had never seen such excess, such money, such, uh, you know, I was fascinated both in a sense that it was a little decadent uh, for me. What did your dad do? My dad was a movie producer. He was there. Yeah, I have and what did your mom do? My mom was Laurence Olivier's assistant. <laughs> no. Yeah, she was. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she was. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a thr- I'd love to be Laurence Olivier's yeah, assistant. I know. How long was she his assistant oh, for? Oh, gosh. Oh, what a peasant rogue and peasant slave am I. Yes. Uh, she was his assistant for about five years, and then she married my, my dad. What, so when she was a young woman, she was when she assistant. married. Yes, yeah, when she was a, he was his assistant when she was young, and she then met my my father at Pinewood Studios, and and uh, and they got married, and then she became. You my know, God, his Olivia wife. could have been your dad if she played her cards smartly. <laughs> Actually, Maureen O'Hara could have been my mother because my father married Maureen O'Hara first. No. Yes, and it's very funny when uh, when I found in about ten years ago that more, after my father just died, and I was feeling particularly connected to him. Uh, I saw that Morgan O'Hara was uh, signing books uh, uh, at, 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 at some bookstore, 
Uh, or was it? No, it was the opening. It was it was her movie, the famous Christmas movie, right? Which I, I, I Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. So she was there at the movie house. So I said to my little girl, you know, then we're going to go and see um, Maureen O'Hara because she was married to Grandpa, and you know, I would I've never met her, and I really want to introduce myself. So I went to this thing, and there was a big line. I introduced myself. I said, Miss O'Hara, I'm George Brown's daughter, and I thought she was going to say. How wonderful to see you. I mean, George. And she turned around and she said to me, that man had absolutely nothing to do with me. I have no desire to meet you. Goodbye. Oh, my goodness. Well, how so, sad. It was tragic. How sad. You know, I mean, I, I, I was I was aghast. But I, I have no idea the backstory. It made me immediately think, what the hell really now went you, on? So you're, before your dad obviously was married to your mother and you, and you were uh, born into that family, your father had been married to O'Hara, divorced her, and then yes. there's no association with her None. whatsoever. What really? are some of the pictures your father produced? Um, he produced uh, Guns at Batasi, the Miss Mar- Marple's movies. Uh, you know, with Margaret Rutherford. You had no desire to go into the film business? No, because I kind of... Your father's making films. He's married to O'Hara. Your mother's with Olivier. Well, I always felt... You want to go do Tatler? (laughs) Good God. To me, editing and producing are very, very similar. You never wanted to make movies? <laughs> the Vanity Fair Diaries has been bought by, um, uh, has been optioned by Bruna Papandro, who did uh, Big Little Lies. So we might see, you know, that as a streaming video, which would be great fun. Maybe that's a sort of a toehold in. I have lots of ideas for films, actually, a lot. They're the same things. It's all about wrangling the story. Storytelling. Cho- storytelling, tracking down the that's material, it. making the writer do the story you want, casting the thing. So I always felt actually the producing and writing were very similar. The story was the prism into an interesting world. I mean, Dominic Dunn's stories uh, were particularly in that vein. I mean, we, we he did a wonderful story about Betsy Bloomingdale. Uh, Alfred, Alfred Bloomingdale's Alfred, mistress. Alfred Bloomingdale, the founder of, of Dinah's Card, his mistress, Vicky Morgan, was found murdered. And they they blamed this guy, Marvin Pancoast, who beat her to death with a baseball bat. But obviously the tension in the story was, was she bumped off? Because there had been this huge palimony case. And so it allowed Nick Dunn to sort of get into the world of the Betsy Bloomingdale society around Mrs. Reagan and tell the story of the sort of slightly dark side, if you like, of uh, Beverly Hills society. How would you describe Nick Dunn, though? I mean, I, I sensed in my tracking of Nick Dunn's career that he was kind of a, a certain type of writer. Then he became, after that, with his own, uh, the murder of his daughter and articles like the Bloomingdale, when he becomes like Tales of Hollywood. He gets a little pulpy. Well, actually, he brings a kind of a passionate pursuit of justice to it, actually. So when, for instance, he did the story of the Klaus von Bühler murder case, uh, in which Klaus von Bühler had been accused of uh, trying to kill his wife, who was then in a coma from a diabetes. Sonny von Bülow. That was a way for him to get into the world of Newport and, and that high society. But it also allowed him to to sort of pursue justice on behalf of the children. So the, what actually did motivate Nick and did make him better than Pulpy was that he he was always trying to ple- to to solve things for the victim because you know he felt himself it was a victim's rights crusade a, a victim's almost rights un- underpinning connect. a lot of what yeah he did. and that's what gave his pieces such heart right so when you say you want to go into a world what's one that just intrigued the hell out of you you sat there and go god i love this piece and oh a lot of the foreign stories we did i absolutely loved i mean we did a wonderful piece about baby doc that gone into the strange sort of voodoo atmosphere of, of haiti at the time we did wonderful stories about Africa. Africa. Um, Alex Shumatov was a fantastic writer for us. He did a, the, the sort of definitive piece about the murder of Diane Fossey, the naturalist. Uh, right. And what he what was so great about that piece is everyone was writing about her as a great environmentalist who'd been sort of killed 
uh, you know, because of her pursuit of uh, against the poachers. But what it really came out was how troubled she was herself as a woman and how actually she uh, she really hated the poachers more than she loved the animals. So this, this, this woman was a really <laughs> disturbed woman, actually, is the truth. And it was, and it was a very interesting sort of look at this, but uh, how, what makes a woman live on the edge like that? So these were the kind of stories that that drove me. And I, to make me a sign of story, I have to feel this abiding curiosity is like, what is the real story here? Like, what are we missing in all of this? And there are some stories which just grab my imagination. I mean, I, I look at someone like Rex Tillerson now, and I just mm-hmm. think, what a great story Rex Tillerson is. Not because of the obvious things, he's Secretary of State, like what's happening, but I see him as a hugely comic character. You know, I, 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 to me, the story is big corporate CEO who everyone is saluted, you know, who who's got in the boardroom. And now he's stumbled into this completely insane mess. This loony bin. This loony bin. And he's still playing it as a straight man. Yeah. To be going somewhere where he's just dismissed or ignored or he's not in control. Now, somebody said about, about uh, Tennyson who knows him to me, he, Rex runs a very crisp meeting. And I was just thinking, like, a crisp meeting is the opposite of what yeah. he's in. I mean, he's now in this right. rambling, insane yeah. asylum. And right. it's like the message has gone completely off I the I just tree. can't imagine him working for someone else who wasn't somebody that he had just in, 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 that he thought was impeccable. Right. Tillerson working for him just seems like uh, inconceivable to me. Uh, so you're at Vanity Fair for what length of time? I was there for eight and a half years. Eight and, years. you know, when I took it over, they had 12 pages of advertising. And by the end, of course, it had turned into this juggernaut. We had 1.2 million circulation, 250 pages of ads. But, you know, about a year and a half in, Newhouse was actually about to close it. And he was almost like a kind of James Thurber character because he was this short, nervous, nebbishy little man. Yeah. If you, you know, he, he, he was completely shy. I mean, he once, you know, very touchingly kind of, we were riding home in the car and, and you know, he said to me, I don't think that... I don't really think I have any power. You know, I have no power. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I said, but Sai, you know, you own Random House. You know, he said, yeah, but if I told publishers what book to buy, they wouldn't pay any attention to me. And I said, well, but look at all the magazines. He said, yes, but, you know, the magazine editors don't really, I mean, I don't think They don't consult me. They don't (laughs) consult me. And he said, actually, and then he mentioned Mr. Sean, who was the editor of The New Yorker at the time. He said, and I find it very hard to get Mr. Sean on the phone. <laughs> so I thought it was so touching in a way because here he was this huge mogul. Yeah. But he it's never his felt company. it. His company. And he, he did love his editors to be stars. I mean, in a way, it was great because, you know, sometimes corporate people are sort of don't like their employees to have attention. And, and they're sort of, you have to be careful because you don't get too much attention. And, and he loved it. He loved his editors being starred. And, and, you know, there was me. There was Anna Winter. There was, I mean, you know, he liked that. And he, he saw us as his studio, really. Where's all the big money come in? Does he own billboards, TV stations, radio? Well, the money, really, there was him and his brother, Donald, and his father, Sam, who was another tiny, nebbishy little fellow uh-huh. with, with, a, with a lot of drive, uh, you know, built this huge newspaper empire from this New Jersey newspaper he began at the beginning. And then he bought monopolies in every town. And soon they had this huge newspaper empire. Right. So the cash cow was the newspapers, actually. And his brother, Donald, ran the newspaper company. And then Sam, the old man, began to get social aspirations. And one day his wife, legend says, says, you know, how much he, she'd like him to buy a copy of Vogue. And he came back and he bought her Vogue. Mitzi literally. Newhouse. Mitzi Newhouse. She the bought, Mitzi Newhouse. The yeah. Mitzi Newhouse. She bought the com- he bought her Coninas, essentially. Yeah. Because she had decided she wanted to now be a lady who lunches a little bit, you know. 
And nothing was better for that than glossy magazines. So the glossy magazines began sort of that way. Sai basically decided he loved magazines. He always had a, he was the aesthete in the family, actually. You know, he appreciated art. He, he, he was fascinated by glamour and magazines. Culture. Really, culture, yeah. So he, he was much better fit for the magazines than the newspapers. And he became a really great magazine publisher. And Vanity Fair and Vogue were enormously profitable. Um, they were in the end, yeah. We took it from, I mean, at the beginning, Vanity Fair lost $40 million. And then I came in and we, by the time I left, it was in profit. And now, of course, you know, after years, it's, it's a big cash. Was that his gift that he placed the bet and he stayed with the bet? He didn't. He didn't falter. Yeah, that was what was so great. He and stayed so with rare. you. He stayed with it, and he really backed me. I mean, now there was a moment of uh, tremor there. I mean, a year and a half in, you know, we were very much liked by readers, but the advertisers were lagging, and it was still losing money. And I was off in the West Coast, about to go on the Merv Griffin show to talk about this great cover we had on the Reagans dancing and kissing, which was one of our great covers. And I suddenly realized that. You know, everybody I was trying to hire was getting stalled. And I called up the office and I said, what's happening? And they said, well, you better come back and talk to Mr. Newhouse, which I did, only to discover that he was on the point of folding the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I had to really talk. That surprised you? I was aghast. I said, you can't, you can't. And I showed him everything I had lined up. You were on the verge. We were on the verge. And he gave us another, he said, okay, you've got another year, you know. And... In that year, we really pulled it out because that's when we had the big class bomb. What do, you think it is, what do you think it is about you that got Newhouse to give you another year? What's it about you? What's your well, gift? Actually, what is it about him, really? Because Well, I showed him what we had. You know, I, you I, believed. You believed. I, I believed. And I, I, you know, I called everybody in the company. I just galvanized everybody to just work on him. And I said, you've got to give us. Actually, he said, you've got two years. And I always knew that was really a year. You know, when they say two years, it's really a year. So when the magazine blasts off to, under your tenure and becomes this must read for everybody, when does it become apparent to you that it's time to go? Well, I'm a very restless type. I mean, you know, in the same way I'd left Van- Tatler uh, after Vanity Fair, I'd been there for eight and a half years. I had two children. I didn't, I didn't want to, I, I was actually feeling a little restless, but I had the young kids, so I didn't want to. You were married to Harold by now. I was married to Harold. I had a child of three and of four and one of um, uh, one. And I was beginning to get restive. Uh, I was also kind of tired of the celebrity culture stuff, actually. Well, I mean, t- I, discuss that. Why? Yeah. Well, I got tired of the conversation, which is, well, can Madonna do Thursday or can she do Friday? You know, she doesn't like the photographer. It was just catering to celebrities. Catering to celebrities began to kind of. Which was your stock, and you had to cater to them. We had to. They were our bread and butter, and, you know, they sold the magazine, of course. Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown. The second half of our conversation covers life after Vanity Fair. Her first stop was the New Yorker. She was succeeded there by David Remnick, whom she hired. On Here's the Thing, Remnick told me there's no official system for developing future New Yorker contributors, so you might get lucky. The farm system is the mail. The farm system is whoever's sending us stuff. You know, people think I'm kidding around. People email me every day. I probably get 15 emails a day that go directly to me because my email's not that hard to figure out. I have an idea. Here's my short story. Now, most of them are not going to work. Once in a while, though, it happens. Hear more stories from the New Yorker's David Remnick at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Tina Brown grew tired of catering to celebrities at Vanity Fair... She was in the running to be transferred to the new jewel in Condé Nast's crown, the New Yorker. 
things weren't going well there, but the old guard didn't want rescuing by the likes of Tina Brown. Rumors were flying. Rather like the beginning, when, when I kept hearing about Vanity Fair, Cy had bought the New Yorker in the meantime, Cy Newhouse. He had got rid of Mr. Sean, the great legendary editor, and put in uh, Bob Gottlieb, who's a fantastic book editor, but a bit like his mistake at Vanity Fair, it didn't make him a great magazine editor. You mm -hmm. know, the fact that he was a great book editor is a different thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I'm Are there those people who would disagree with you or those people who they were pretty happy with Bob Gottlieb as the editor? Because <sighs> we're going to get to the subject of the resistance you agree with. Yeah. No, actually, I think the people at The New Yorker... I mean, Bob Gottlieb was unlucky because he followed a great legend. He'd been there for 30 years, 40 years, right? Mr. Right. Sean was one of the great legends. It was Mr. Sean, Mr. Sean. <laughs> you, had, you had put on <laughs> white gloves to yes. even speak to him. Yes. And so poor Bob Gottlieb then came into the situation where everybody was very upset about no the fire. No one can win. Yeah. No, but then he didn't really know how to do a, a, a magazine. And, uh, you know, he did some good things. But, so, but when I came in, you see, I'd just done a cover with Vanity Fair with Demi Moore naked and pregnant. Right? I know. And it... <laughs> <laughs> it was something of a sensation. Yes. Annie Leibovitz was the other the wonderful thing we ever worked with. And so they thought, here comes this, uh, the girl who did... Uh, right. I'm uh, under the Daniel impression Cullen. that it, the New Yorker, it was divided. I mean, I don't, I don't have any empirical data here, but it was divided into two groups. Those who were elated you were coming mm -hmm. to kind of save the magazine and right. make, right. improve the sales. And those who felt that you weren't, you know, uh, uh, you'd left the Oxford behind and you were more right. tattler than Oxford. Exactly. And, you know, I understand why they were nervous, frankly. I mean, why wouldn't they be? But, um, and the very first meeting that I had at the New Yorker, there was all of these, and I was the first woman, obviously, because I'd only been four editors and they'd all been men. So I come into this room and there were all of these men sitting around the table. Now, talk about, that. That. Now, talk about that. What's it like for a woman who's uh, in charge in 92? Well, it was... In a place like that where I think they're a bit more... Old Guard, Very The old Times, guard. all these places here, women don't always have a great time well, there. Well, one of the writers, and I think it was kind of endemic, referred to me as the girl in the wrong dress, okay, which really explains in a nutshell the attitude to me, which is like, what is she doing coming in here, this, you know, there's a woman who doesn't understand us. And, you know, there was a lot of resistance, and I think some of it was misogynist. There's no doubt about it. They really How'd you handle that? I just blazed through it. You know, I mean, you, you, just, you just like, I just rage through it. Uh, and, you know, and I won some of them round too, you know, actually. Because what I found was, uh, you know, one thing I, I, I'm a big believer in is really listening to who's there, right? So I didn't go in and, and do stuff like just fire everybody. I mean, I did fire actually 70 people in the end. But I did listen to who was there and I really made quick distinctions about who I thought had it and who didn't. And there were some wonderful older people there. I mean, people like John Updike and Roger Angel and, I mean, Lillian Ross. These people were absolutely fabulous and golden. And they actually did welcome me. The people who didn't welcome me were, were the sort of um, 40, 50-year-olds, actually, who felt their identity depended on the New Yorker. I found that the greatest generation group, like Brennan Gill and Roger Angel, were confident enough not to feel their whole identity depended on the uh, fake ivy, if you like, of the William Sean karma. Mantle. Mantle. Yeah. I mean, John Updike was up for adventure. I mean, he was sick of doing book reviews. You know, yeah. he was quite happy to go off and write about Oscar Knight or something. You know, yeah. I mean, it was, just, it was interesting to him. What did you say to yourself? What needed to change there? Well, what I wanted to do was to hire a bunch of amazing writers who I would I felt So younger. hiring is job one. Hiring was job one, and I did. I mean, I hired David Remnick, you know, who succeeded me. I hired Malcolm Gladwell. 
I had Jeffrey Tubin, I had Jane Mayer, I had Anthony Lane from London, John Law. Great film critic, I by mean, the way. Yeah, wonderful yeah. film critic, John Law. Who was I, I don't like saying that because film critics are always kind no, to no, me in the past. Wonderful. But Lane's wonderful. a wonderful writer. Wonderful yeah. writer, absolutely marvelous. He was only 27 when I, when I hired him. Uh, you know, I had Jerome Groupman, the great medical writer, and Atul Gawande and Henry Louis Gates. I mean, I did bring in the most amazing writers, and they're all still there. And I also brought in uh, some amazing editors, too. And I actually brought in a lot of women. I mean, uh, my executive editor, Dorothy Wickenden, who's still there, my managing editor, Pam McCarthy, who's still there. They were all of these great women that I brought in. You had to get rid of some people? A lot, yeah. I got yeah, rid And when of you do that, is it described without naming names? What's, what's that process like? Well, no, one thing Short I, and sweet? No, as a matter of fact, I, I actually think it... Uh, you really need to be very sensitive when you when you are hiring people. I didn't always get it right. Sometimes it blows up and it gets it's wrong, or I didn't do it right. But when I did it right, I actually think it takes several conversations because what I learned was the first conversation you have to try to explain that this isn't working out, but they don't hear it. Right, interesting. <laughs> and there's a second conversation, and then the third conversation you want someone else to have the conversation. But you know, I do feel keeping dignity is incredibly important. Do you argue on the side of being generous in terms of severances yes. and people who they really think they're going to have this job for the rest of their lives probably, don't well, they? Well, one of the things that was so great about Newhouse, because I couldn't be generous unless he let me be. Right. He right? was generous. He really was, actually. I mean, that was one of the great things about Cy. He didn't, as long, you know, once he decided to move on, there was never an argument about this person is having to hire a lawyer to say, I need more. You know, he was very generous like that. He would just say to people, for instance, when he hired my predecessor at Vanity Fair, he said, look, I'm going to fire him, but I'll keep him on for life and I'll tell him he can go to Europe twice a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, who does that, mm -hmm. honestly? I mean, it's pretty unusual. And so Cy was wonderful like mm -hmm. that, very, very generous. And, you know, we had a, a tough time, you know, kind of getting this thing to work. I mean, it was losing uh, uh, 20 million when I took it over. I, we, we Why was that? Stuff. Why was that? Where have those readers gone? Well, they, they'd aged. You know, it was they'd simply aged. that they had really aged. And we just needed to... to, to completely spruce up the Open act. the windows. Open the windows. And actually, I brought photography into The New Yorker, which yes. I have never had. I, br I brought Richard Avedon in yeah. to take pictures. <laughs> uh, I hired Art Spiegelman to be one of the cover artists. I brought in his wife, Francoise Mouly, to be the art director. So I really brought my visual sense to The so New Yorker. So you bring the tools you have for the other magazines to yes. this with, with some changes. And, uh, and I redesigned it. I mean, we, we, we really sort of facelifted it, but kept its kind of purity. But where you have... Um, where you talk about uh, coming from Vanity Fair with a uh, an abundance, if you will, not exclusively so, but an abundance of celebrity culture. You come into the New Yorker. Do you s decide you have to have some? You need to start to insert a little of that DNA into the New Yorker as well. Definitely. Who hired I mean, Tad Friend? Well, actually, I did. But, you did. Uh, yeah, he's excellent. But but in fact, the one I would beg to differ about that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have an argument about that. That's okay. You Through no fault of his own. Okay, I'll, we'll leave that with you. Um, for instance, Jeff Tubin, who I hired as our legal sort of analyst, he was a, an assistant DA at the time, young uh, assistant DA, and I wanted to cover law. When the O.J. Simpson story broke, Jeff actually had had two or three pieces that hadn't worked out. And I was beginning to think, oh, my God, I made a mistake with this guy, Jeff Tubin. His book about the Clintons is one of my favorite books. Oh, such yeah. a wonderful writer. But he went off to L.A., I said, why don't you just go and cover this O.J. Simpson mm -hmm. thing and see whether this pans out. That story just took a hold of yep. Jeff. He broke yep. every Both his piece books are great. of news on it. Yep. And he became, and what was wonderful was he brought his kind of legal rigor mm -hmm. to the story. But at the same time, it was the great, you know, compulsively glitzy story of our time. Mm -hmm. That's what I think I did bring into the New Yorker DNA was a sense that, you know, by doing 
Jeff Dubin on, on, on O.J. Simpson, I kind of set that table, which now today where Ronan Farrow can do Harvey Weinstein, it's a legitimate subject matter. For well, Ronan Farrow and Harvey Weinstein, that's another topic we're going to get into. <laughs> but I, want to just, I just want to explain what I said about Tad Friend is, a, is not a comment on his writing. What I'm saying is I find that most people who write about Hollywood, most people who write about uh, – um, I had this complaint about Amy Pascal's husband who used to write for the New York Bernie Times. Bernie Weinraub. Yeah. Bernie Weinraub. I had this awful contretemps with him once. Uh, because I think that everybody that writes about Hollywood, they pull their punches in terms of management, the people who are really in charge. I mean, the people who write about Hollywood, if you really want to write the truth about what's going on in Hollywood, you talk about how non-creative people have taken over the process from top to bottom. They wouldn't know what a good movie was if it came up and bit them in the ass at the bar of the polo lounge. They know nothing about it. They don't have a creative molecule in their body. Now, it used to be a guy like Zanuck, Dick Zanuck, or even his father, would so Daryl Zanuck, they sit there and go, I don't know how to make a great movie, but I know people, I can recognize people who can. And they went out there, uh, uh, Metavoy, the great execs, the great heads of production, the great studio heads, and beyond all that were people who they, they knew who to assemble and say, let's get all of them in a room. I knew who I want. We're all chasing down the same stars. This is Edith Head, this cinematographer, James Wong Howe. Let's get all these guys together and make this great, great movie. Now you have none of that. You have people, they don't even like movies. But you find, and I'm not picking on Friend, but Friend, I find him a bit anemic, and assigning the blame where it belongs. The actors always take the hit when the movie doesn't work. Rather than the fact that the DGA is the most bankrupt, it is the most bankrupt of the guilds now. You've got abundant great writers out there with great ideas. You've got tons of great actors who want to work, and you don't have that many men and women that can direct a movie. You just don't. They don't know what they're doing. Well, it's remarkable how little there is. I mean, that's why streaming videos becomes such a godsend and so fabulous, and that's why all the creativity is going there, right? Because it's a tough time in the business because for, for that reason, which is... The people who are picking, you, you've, got to, you've got to try to make an appeal to someone to buy something that they have no taste in whatsoever. You well, know? it's tragic, and that's actually why Newhouse was so great, because he knew talent. Right. You know, and, exactly. I mean, and he He's like Zanuck. Yeah, and he didn't want to get in the mix himself, but he knew who to put in place, and it was like, now you run with it, you know, which is something that's very, very rare. So how long are you at The New Yorker? I was at The New Yorker for nearly seven years. Did you keep a New Yorker diary? Less often, <laughs> alas, because it was a weekly and I had a kid and, you know, I, so it was much harder for me to do Busy. it. And I, uh, you know, I regret that I didn't write it with as much kind of intensity and detail that I did the Vanity Fair Diaries. So I didn't do as much. And then after six and a half, seven years, I began to get frustrated there because I always felt that The New Yorker should be more, by the end, that it should be more than a magazine. I wanted to see it be a radio show, right. a book company, a, because people were always trying to buy Do you that Remnick sat here and did our podcast, Remnick did our podcast, walked out the door and started his own podcast. Right, he sat in that chair and said, if this moron can do this, I can do it. And he walked out and started his <laughs> and own podcast. And he's doing a great podcast. And I'll never forgive him. Yeah. And I didn't, there was no podcast in those days, but I did think exactly that. that more that media. The, yeah, I thought it should be more media, and I thought it could be like the HBO of, of print, you know? Um, Is so, that your phone, by the way? Yeah, sorry. You, no, no, you, I, would, I would always assume that Tina Brown's phone was ringing constantly. My, like daughter, my, my daughter, my daughter. It's your daughter. Texting. <laughs> and so, it, but, 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 but just describe real quickly, how is it different at The New Yorker? Well, Compare and contrast the two. It, it was much more um, 
open warfare against me at the New Yorker at the beginning, you know, because we had this huge kind of uh, pushback from the old guard expecting that this was going to be me putting Demi Moore in, in, in the magazine. I mean, for instance, the cartoonist, uh, Bob Mankoff, he thought that I was going to uh, cancel all the cartoons and just put pictures in. And, and of course, it was the reverse was true. I actually gave the car, Bob Mankoff, I made him cartoon editor and I actually gave, you know, a, a, him a whole cartoon issue every Christmas to do. But He uh, got a documentary out of it, yeah, too. Yeah, he got a documentary and I started the Cartoon Bank and all of these things. That, that, that He's wonderful. He's absolutely yeah. fast. We, be, we became the, the best of friends. But but for the first two two or three years, it was this kind of, what is she trying to do? But then I think what happened basically was that a lot of the defectors left. The new amazing people were so good. I mean, when you have people like Remnick and Rick Hertzberg, who I brought in, and <gasps> I who Rick I love Hertzberg. him so dearly. Oh, I mean, God. he's the cleverest and the best. And, you know, that took, it was like a graft. It was like a skin graft, right? And, it, and there was a wonderful moment, actually, when I was having a sandwich with John Updike in the office. And before he came, Anthony Lane, the film critic, said to me, oh, I hear you're having lunch with John Updike. I am, he's my hero. I just want to meet him. So I said, okay, well, I'm in the middle of lunch. You know, just knock on the door and I'll introduce you to John. Knock, knock. Through the, and as he comes in, John Updike jumps up and says, Anthony Lane, I've been so looking forward to meeting you. It was a wonderful moment because it was a, you saw the blood exchange had yeah. happened, you know, which is yeah. at the old guard. And, and from that moment, really... You know, it all settled down, and we were soon the most amazingly uh, exciting ship. So when the time comes to leave The New Yorker, I mean, I'm sure having taken two magazines and Three. really, well, well, well Tatler, yeah, but, but 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 here in the U.S. Vanity Fair and The New Yorker and having tremendous success with them and, and new house behind you, what did you fantasize would be next? Well, I had this fantasy of, of an extended media laterally. You see, as I said, I wanted to do radios, books, TV shows out of the New Yorker brand. Sy Newhouse, for all of his uh, wonderfulness, did not get that. That's where he stumbled, actually, because, frankly, had he done that 20 years ago, I mean, this was like... He didn't understand where we were headed. He did not understand where we were headed. Condé Nast did miss the, miss the trick when it came to getting ahead of that curve. I mean, the things that I told Cy to do in the 90s were the things that they should have done, because I was I did see it early, probably too early, and too early for him to see it. you sound nuts. I sound <laughs> no, nuts. Okay, it was okay, like, right, settle right, down, right. do your magazine, like, go back to your knitting, stop. Go have lunch with Updike. Like, go have lunch with Updike. Yeah, and I was thinking, I want to do... So, along comes... A person who's been in the news lately, yes, Mr. Harvey Weinstein, yes. uh, who comes to me and says, I want you to come and do a magazine with Miramax. Right. You can do books. You can do films. You can right. do all of these things. The thing um, that you, the idea you had, yeah, my he idea. wanted to back you. you Talk know? is the magazine. Talk magazine, we called it. So I said, okay, I'll do this. And... I thought that he was the sort of the missing piece of entrepreneurial verve that was going to help me develop these thoughts. And, you know, I leapt out of uh, the ivory tower mm -hmm. into a, well, I wanted it to be a rough and tumble thing. I was ready for that. I'd been at the court of Louis XIV, as it were, for 17 years. And I thought this will be exciting and you know, rugged, and I'm going to now... And how does Newhouse compare to Harvey Weinstein? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, it was like a bad dream. Newhouse was always sort of courteous, always warm, really, and uh, he was difficult. A gentleman. Yeah, he, he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman, but he could, I mean, he could be very difficult. He could be very irritating, but he was never abusive or in any way inappropriate or I anything. Find that I find it unbelievable that Harvey was abusive to you. Well, he was actually. I mean, you'd you know, have no, battles no, about. I things. mean, yeah. I, I mean, he basically was. Well, he Harvey. The problem with Harvey is he and I immediately had a completely opposed vision of what it should be. I mean, I wanted to leave. 
The New Yorker and Vanity Fair to do something obviously different from either of them, right? I had this concept of a literary news magazine that was going to be like an, a European news magazine. I was in love with magazines like Paris Match and Stern, and I love those magazines. And I wanted to do a European news magazine with a New Yorker quality typeface and content with amazing photography like Paris Match. That mm-hmm. was the idea with a cover with multiple images on it and all of the things that hadn't been really done here. I love those magazines. I did the first couple couple of issues. They were amazingly good. But then within about two months, I mean, Harvey immediately started to say, I want Vanity Fair. I want you to just copy Vanity Fair. I want you to have, you know, Matt Damon on the cover. I want you to... Cross promotion. Completely. And I, you know, and it became so frustrating to me because I felt that I was being forced into this kind of celebrity journalism again, but in this wildly unstable environment where also I was having... In a very ham-fisted way, by the way. Very ham-fisted way. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I I found it very, very distracting. And hiring and firing. Was that another uh, point of friction? Absolutely. Well, no, I, I hired my own team at first, but I did find, of course, that Harvey wanted to go around town assigning things all the time. And I mean, that never happened before. To yeah, there me. were I deals mean, that were made by Harvey for, the, mean, for, for talk and for the book publisher. Exactly. It was like flight attendants on private jets. Yeah, and so there forth. was a lot of that. I would run into a person who would tell me that his piece was coming in on Wednesday, you know, and I would say, what piece, you know, and how am I going to pay for it? Because it was also my budget that was like streaming out the door. So I, you know, I, I felt extremely uh, frustrated with it. But, you know, it was um, having leapt out of the New Yorker, obviously it was a, it was heartbreaking. Oh. Yeah. It was heartbreaking, really, yeah. what happened. And, of course, then uh, it didn't go well because, you know, the... the, the, the How kind long of, did it last? Uh, it lasted for t- for two years. And then actually 9-11 really put the, the kibosh on it because then advertising disappeared and then you were going to have to have deep pockets behind you. Uh, did you walk away? You just was like you got in a I, car like service a, and took off and never spoke to him again? Or was there an no, ongoing... No, actually, no. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I stayed on perfectly okay terms with Harvey after that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, you know... What happened, happened. Yeah, because we have the weird condition where you and I are intersecting here for this interview right when all this stuff is happening. And um, I don't think the Weinstein Company should go out of business because there's all these innocent people are going to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. get rid of Harvey and Bob. Let someone else take over so that everybody else can have their job. But don't punish innocent people because Harvey is apparently a monster. Well, as a matter of fact, just before I got here, I got an email from somebody who used to work for Miramax in London. And she said, I'm absolutely in a state of shock. She said, now I feel my entire resume has cast me into the light of being this hideously dubious colluder, um, honey trap bait for for, for rapists. And I had no idea this stuff was happening. Uh, I'm going to turn over my car too because I've gotten a lot of uh, attacks online because I was dear friends and, and have been dear friends with Jimmy Toback. I never once had a conversation with Jimmy about his sex life. And now those people who come at you about Harvey, is it the same thing where you're just sitting there going, you're not having conversations with people about, you know, the Harvey problem? Well, certainly I didn't, you know, right. you know, one doesn't. Look at all the people who wrote notes to Huma Aberdeen saying it's so terrible what they're saying about your husband, Anthony Weiner, and, you know, it isn't true. And, and then, oh, my God, it turns out to have been this kind of serial... He murder, sat in that chair as well. You know, and so you, you sort of feel... You feel gun-shy about yeah. speaking up about anybody's other side. So... You write the thing about Lady Diana, who I met once. And want to know something? She was so much more beautiful and more interesting in person. So much more. It almost didn't do her justice. She was stunning. Stunning. And it was all about mm. the coloring, wasn't oh it? Oh, my God. I mean, it was this peach. She's gorgeous. Peach velvet face and this huge, limpid, 
blue feeling eyes. You knew people her. didn't realize. I did, I did, and I, I always felt like you did. Uh, in fact, I had lunch with her in New York about six weeks before she died. And when she walked into the Four Seasons, it was just so, she's so stunning, you know, because she's so in, huge. I mean, she's like this gazelle who's like, you know, six foot something, it felt, yeah. you know, in the shoes. And, and the eyes that were just so enormous. And yet she was so lonely talked about loneliness and how, you know, in August, she was dreading August because the children were going off to stay with Charles in Balmoral and how she she said, nobody wants me to have me to stay. And I said, why? Well, what are you talking about? Everybody wants to have you. She said, no, she said, you said the paparazzi come and they go through your garbage and, you know, you just, she said, it's just horrible to have me to stay. She said, I, I am, you know, I have nowhere to go in August. My children are, and I just thought how extraordinary it was that she felt that lonely, but it also did explain when you learned of her death, you know, six weeks later or whatever it was, what she was doing in the south of France. I mean, she was really there because she was so lonely and along come the Al-Fayed family who have what she called all the toys, i.e. the planes and the bodyguards and, the, you know, and the chauffeurs and so it's on. It's like Jackie Kennedy marrying Onassis. Exactly the same. Some of the most prominent figures, I mean, your peers, if you will, in terms of their prominence in the publishing world, Graydon is leaving, uh, Robbie Meyer. And Jan sold the business. And I'm wondering, it's just technology yeah, is taking I mean, I, over yeah, again. Yeah, I think digital disruption has become so intense that for many of them, it was like, look, I had a great time and let's leave this now to someone who can just do this reinvention because I, I did my stuff. You could have kept going. Yeah. Did you, did well, you I see now something? Have, well, no, I, I decided to, to uh, start a live media company because mm. I felt that it was no longer about stories and pictures and captions and words, which is what I love to do, and had become all about how am I going to get the revenue stream? What is the digital platform? You know, all of that anguish that is about process as opposed to stories. And so I now do many of these live events where I can at least uh, showcase incredible stories and put them on the stage and have people watching them, which is what we do with women in the world, because just magazines cannot anymore survive. So now Condé Nast, they're actually making a lot of speed trying to do stuff like David Remnick doing his podcast, you know, which is great, and they should be doing a lot more of that. But it's, uh, you know, there are these brands there that now have to be sort of rethought, and it's you're doing it against the clock. A challenge for the next generation of Tina Browns. But the magazine business is different now. Nobody will ever match the power and glamour of Vanity Fair at the height of Brown's reign. Her book is Vanity Fair Diaries. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios. <laughs> <laughs> 